Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea. We're continuing our series in the book of Hosea. This is a two-part series. And if you remember last Sunday, we explored chapters 1 through 3. And then this, today, we're exploring chapters 4 through 14. We've all read the headlines that cause our stomachs to drop. There's been a lot of them lately in the news. When you read the ancient prophet Hosea, it can feel a lot like that kind of headline. And here's why. It's one of heartache and pain. It's one of love betrayed and self-destruction. But it's right there in the midst of all the crazy mess it's right there in, in the midst of the most severe brokenness and rejection you can imagine that the God of the Bible answers with compassion and love. With that in mind, let's read Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of, of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. We'll pause there. I know this is hard. We're stepping back in time. We're reading an ancient prophet to the nation of Israel. He's using all this vivid imagery, Stuff, is, it's hard to hear. It's a word of judgment. There is hope, and we'll get to that. It's strong language. It's meant to be. There's some serious stuff going down here. But let's just pray for help. Lord, we, we pause, and we ask for help. But we pray that you would, by your grace, help us to hear the message of Hosea, and see its relevance for our lives today. That you would protect us and keep us from dismissing this message of something only for the past. And, and you would help us, please, Lord, 
to see, to identify areas that need to change in our own lives, areas that you are putting your finger on. And by your compassion and love, Lord, lifting us out of, help us to see that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things I pray we do see uh, in these uh, chapters this morning. First, God's charge. Second, God's compassion. Third, God's invitation. We just read God's charge. Before we dive a little bit deeper into the charge, the accusations that God has against the nation of Israel, I want to do a little overview. So we discussed chapters one through three. We looked at them last Sunday, and that was all about Hosea being called by God to marry a promiscuous, adulterous woman. I mean, this is, this is hard. It's as personal as it could get. This isn't an easy call. And, and yet God called him to marry this promiscuous woman and, and who had, after they married, turned to other lovers. And then uh, Hosea was then called to go and purchase his unfaithful wife back out of her broken and perverted lifestyle. His wife, Gomer, most likely turned to the false god, Baal, where there was a temple, and, and, and this was a, a god of fertility and agriculture, where they would practice all kinds of sexual acts in worship uh, of this false god, and, and most likely for a price. And so Hosea finds Gomer and purchases her out of that debt that she was in and that she owed, and cleans her up and calls her back to himself. It's a symbol of God's relentless love. It's a symbol of God's faithful pursuit of an unfaithful people. And now, here we are in chapters 4 all the way through 14 to the end of this book, and it provides the main body of Hosea's prophetic message. Um, And so God is bringing this message of judgment and hope in a cyclical pattern. It's just chapter after chapter of this heartfelt, poetic imagery that's meant to shake and stir and call Israel out of her idolatry, out of her spiritual adultery. And and there's all this vivid imagery given. The Lord, Yahweh, he's described as a lion, as a leopard, as a bear, a vulture, a trapper, a husband, a lover, a parent, even a green tree. Israel, the nation of Israel is described as an adulterous wife, a snare, a heated oven, a half-baked bread, a senseless dove, a faulty bow, a baby refusing to be born, a mist, a a floating twig, a rebellious child. Here Hosea uses this vivid, vivid word pictures taken from everyday life as warning signs meant to lead the nation of Israel to a place of repentance, to a place away from and out of uh, the course that they're on, the way they're living, away from and out of and, and towards the living God again, calling them back to wholehearted devotion, exclusive devotion to the living God. Israel had been welcomed into a covenant relationship with Yahweh, with God, delivered out of Egyptian slavery, brought into the land of promise. Before they entered that land of promise, uh, they were told, listen, don't fall prey to the prosperity that comes your way and then shrink back and pull away from God and turn to these other idols. Don't do that. Judgment will follow if you do that. That's exactly what's happened to the nation of Israel. They fell away from the living God. And so here in chapter four, in the first few verses especially, it feels like just courtroom language. 
like a formal lawsuit is being laid out. God is stating his complaint. He's making his case against the nation. And there are three primary charges given in verse 1 against the nation of Israel, and they are these. No faithfulness, no love, no knowledge. No faithfulness, no love. And this love, it's covenant love, like marriage relationship. And no knowledge, no commitment to God no acknowledgement of the Lord. And when there's no acknowledgement of God, something will take his place. Inevitably, something takes his place when we don't acknowledge the Lord. And because of this, there's this breakdown in their relationship with God, but it also led to a breakdown in in everything else in, in their society. And you see it laid out. There's lying, there's murder, there's stealing, there's committing adultery, there's bloodshed upon bloodshed. It's dark. You can read about the history of Israel during this time uh, in, in the book of Kings, it is, it is a dark period uh, in, in their life. But I want you to notice the charge against the people of Israel. It narrows down to the priests. They failed. They did not teach the people the way of the Lord. They had pulled away from that. Israel had a fascination with Baal, the Canaanite fertility and agricultural god. Maybe God didn't perform the way they wanted him to, and so they turned to Baal. Listen, we can often reduce our relationship with God to more of a transactional one. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. But that's, that's not what God is calling us into. That's not a healthy marriage, by the way. In the end, Israel actually just didn't believe that they could trust the Lord, that he was faithful. They didn't believe that he was enough. And so they compromised. Israel moved away from exclusive devotion and personal commitment to Yahweh, and they bought into a lifestyle of compromise and accommodation. And listen, that doesn't just happen overnight. It usually begins in a moment of crisis or a moment of darkness. You think, all right, Lord, I'm calling on you if you call on the Lord in that moment or you start get, getting comfortable turning to other things instead of the Lord. And it's, it's a dangerous pattern. Maybe it was a, a moment of compromise that led to other moments of compromise that led to a lifestyle of accommodation, of pulling away from the Lord. Maybe it's just thinking, you know what? Maybe the Lord is uh, keeping me from something I'd be better off having. Why can't I walk in that relationship? Why can't I pursue that? Seems right in my eyes. Why is he holding that back? And so one one decision leads to another, leads to another, and you pull yourself away from the living God. And so there's this charge against Israel of no faithfulness, of no love, of no acknowledgement, but that charge can be summed up in one word, idolatry. Because idolatry is spiritual adultery. Now, we don't often think about the idols of our culture, but I think it's important that we try. Uh, God's like, or good things, rather, good things like money, vocation, relationships, sex, acceptance, respect, talent, our time, our leisure, even entertainment. All of these things, they're fine. They're good things, but these good things can become the best thing in our life, the central thing in our life. They can become the things we lean on, we trust in, we look to, and ultimately worship and admire. They steal our love and our affection and our time 
above God. These are created things that we put over and above the creator. And this is a pattern. This is a pattern. We read about it in the book of Romans, actually. I I want you to see it. In the book of Romans, Paul writes to the church of Rome, and he's warning them about people who have pulled away from the living God. I want to begin in verse 22 of chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because here's why. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You think, okay, well, I have not done that. Let's keep going. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because here's what they did. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul is encouraging the church of Rome to see, listen, this can happen to any of us. We can exchange created things. We can exchange the creator for created things. We can put created things in the place that he belongs. And this is dangerous. Paul's not the only one who encouraged the church this way. Uh, John, the apostle John, he, he writes at the end of 1 John, last thing he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. So apparently, this is something that we need to uh, acknowledge as something we need to fight against and push against and, 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 and work hard at to keep ourselves from idols because we will become like the one we worship. And for Israel, spiritual blindness set in, a deafness set in to the ways of the Lord, indifference, apathy, this laziness towards the one true God, the God of the Bible. He wasn't all that exciting anymore. He certainly wasn't enough. One songwriter, I just love this. I heard this this week. She writes, overshadow every counterfeit. I will abandon every counterfeit that has slowly won my gaze. I thought, that's it. That's it. I will abandon every counterfeit that has slowly won my gaze. Wow, what if we make that our prayer? Lord, protect me from these counterfeit gods, these lowercase g gods that are not gods. Protect me. I want to abandon. I want to run away from from the fake. I want to look to the real thing, to you, because you're enough. But these things slowly win our gaze and draw us in. Let's go back to Hosea. In Hosea 5, we find that Israel, who's referred to as Ephraim, which is a, a tribe within the nation itself, has turned to Assyria instead of to Yahweh. And so they've made this alliance with the nation of Assyria. Look with me in Hosea chapter 5. I want you to see it in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, in Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. And so here's the idea. They turned away from Yahweh, from the Lord, and they looked to Assyria to heal their sickness, to take care of their wound, which represents uh, the trouble they were in. Where are you turning to today? What or who are you trying to find healing in? I'm talking about to cure your loneliness, to meet you in that place of fear and anxiety, 
Where are you looking to maybe to find purpose and identity and hope? Where do you go with your sickness? Where do you go with your wound? Is the Lord enough? That relationship that you're in right now, the one that you're pursuing, it won't heal you. It won't satisfy in the end. It might cause you to forget for a while. Those possessions that you have, that position that you've been given, it won't heal you. It'll cause you to forget for a while, but that's all. I want you to hear the invitation of chapter 6 in Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. Verse 1. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us. As the, showers, as, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You hear the invitation here. Remember, there's this cycle of hope and judgment, hope and judgment. We feel it almost with every, every section that we read. Come, let us return to the Lord, verse 1. But then also, do you see the complexity of God's heart in verse 4? Well, what do I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud. That's not a good thing. Like the dew that goes away early. Like a mist. It's fickle. It's short-lived is what he's saying. But here's what the Lord desires. Verse 6. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. God does not want a faith that, that is simply all about externals. External rituals. Where outward ceremony uh, right, just takes the place of love and mercy where we're just checking off a box on our list of things we feel like we need to do for God. Has your walk with God been reduced to attending church? Has your walk with God been reduced to moral decency and doing what is right or what's expected of you? That's a dangerous place to be. And maybe you've been there for a long time and you're numb to it, but maybe right now you feel like you're being shaken out of it and coming alive in a different way, and that's a good thing. Because God is not okay with you remaining in that state. Hosea 7 talks this way. They don't don't cry for me from the heart. They say that they know me, but it's lip service. That's all. They they don't say it with their lives. And then in chapters 9 and 10, there's this History of Israel that's laid out from Jacob's lying to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness to their choice of a king over God in, in King Saul. And it's as if Hosea is just bringing out point after point after point, and he's saying, This family is messed up. This nation is messed up, and it's been messed up from the start. What is God going to do about it? How is he going to intervene? 
You might wonder that about your own family, about your own life. Look at chapter 13. What I'm about to read sums up what happened to Israel and what could happen to us. Beginning in verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. What's he saying? I like how the NIV puts it. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. This, these few verses have stirred a ton of reflection and repentance in my own heart, in my own life, over, over the last 20 years. These verses sum up what happened to Israel, the pathway that they took to forget God. God fed them. God provided for them. They became satisfied. Then they became proud or self-focused. Then they forgot, meaning they made a decision to move away from, stop paying attention to God. So here's what happened. The Lord met them. He showed mercy to them. He brought them out of bondage to Egypt, provided a spacious and beautiful land for them to dwell in. They prospered, and in their prosperity, they became complacent. Nominalism sets in, where you are uh, a follower in name only. It's a very surface-level thing, shallow, casual relationship with God. You start looking to other gods. Maybe that, maybe that, maybe this will satisfy. One author says this, they became careless Living as if it was, it wasn't, uh, living as if he wasn't there. Living as if their ways were nothing more than a lifestyle choice. Let's hit the pause button. They became careless, living as if the Lord wasn't present. I mean, how many of us can just own up to that, okay? Let's just be honest. How many times have we gone weeks, sometimes months, without maybe, maybe giving God a head nod? We can, we can live this way. And it's dangerous. Living as if he's not present, active, involved, or loving. Living as if their ways were nothing more than a lifestyle choice. Here's the problem. He goes on to write, again and again, with monotonous repetition, they lost sight of the holiness of God. They lost sight of the character of God. They moved away from the gravity, the reality of what it means to live Coram Deo, or before the face of God. To submit their lives to a holy God, one who is perfect in all his ways, one who has forgiven us our sin, one who invites us into a living, breathing relationship with him, one who is present and active and who really cares about our lives. And we can make that shift away from him for all kinds of reasons. We've been hurt by people who represented him maybe to us in the past, or maybe we didn't get what we wanted from him, or maybe we misunderstand really what he's calling us to. There's all kinds of reasons why we make that shift. Maybe it's just we're just stubborn and we're wanting what we want and forget it. I've suffered long enough in my life, I'm gonna just be me and go after what I want. We, we say all kinds of stuff to pull away from him. 
We also do all kinds of things to make sure we don't forget important events and meaningful moments in our life. And why do I say that? Israel forgot God. They made a conscious decision to pull away from him exclusively. What do we fight hard to remember? What do we, what do we really work hard at remembering? Well, if you're married, hopefully you work really hard at remembering that you're married. And uh, just yesterday, we did a wedding here. Lily and Spencer were married right here. Yes, special, special day for them and for, for me to be able to officiate that wedding. And it happened to be on Valerie and I's 22nd anniversary yesterday. Yeah. Thank you. It, it, was, it was hard for me in, in throughout the wedding to kind of hold it together. Because I saw that bride, Lily, she looked so beautiful. But it reminded me of my bride just 22 years prior. And, and I remember, you know, doing the wedding, uh, doing the rings, we always talk about the ring. What is, what is the purpose of this? To remember. To, to remember that you have pledged yourself to be faithful to this individual exclusively. Exclusively. So you let this ring remind you that you are wholly devoted to this individual. No one else. We need to fight hard to remember that God has called us to himself. Exclusive devotion, marriage covenant. Really, marriage is the, the best description of what he's called us into. But what happens when we forget? What happens when we, we really don't remember, we don't recall? Why do we celebrate communion like Lance led us in? Why do we sing these songs? Why do we gather like this? We're fighting to remember. And in remembering, we're fighting. We're fighting to remember and celebrate. In celebrating, we're fighting to remember. We're holding on to promises. We're pushing back against the lies. We're pushing back against fear. We're celebrating. We're, we're remembering. We need to continue to do this because all of us here are prone. All of us are prone to wander. All of us are prone to drift. There's not one here, myself included, uh, that, that, that couldn't fall prey to the lies of the enemy, or to the lies of our culture that lead us away from the living God. And so we need to be mindful of that. But we learned of the charge. Now let's look at God's compassion. We saw God's charge against Israel. And this really is the heart of the entire book, this collection of prophecy for the nation of Israel. This is the heart of it. Chapter 11. I'm going to read this, but I want you to imagine you are opening up a diary, a journal. And, and you've been invited to read it. It's okay. You're not doing anything wrong. And as we read this, what you're going to feel is God's heart for his people. And uh, you not only, it, it, to me, it feels like it, it's, it's as personal as it gets. Let's just put it that way. So here we go. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I 
became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, it recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. It's like we're pressing our ear up to his heart. We're not only hearing it, we're feeling it. There's feeling here. So here is a loving parent grieving over a rebellious son. That's what this is. I want you to look for the emphasis on the pronoun I. First four verses. I loved, I called, I taught to walk, I healed, I lifted, I fed. Parents, you remember when you you did this for your kids? Maybe you're doing it now. Just two nights ago, I found a video of when Silas, my youngest, uh, just was learning to walk. And, And he walked about 15 feet towards me, looking all drunk and everything. And he got to me. I was like, you did it. Look, you did it. It's just the celebration. And I remember that moment. It was so sweet. And that's the image that we have here of God's joy in his child, in his children, in his people. I love, I called, I taught to walk. But then it shifts from I to they. And it speaks of the judgment that will fall on them. And it's, it's easy to think, man, this is the end of the story. But it's not. Sure, Assyria does come, lead the northern nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, into captivity and into exile. It happens. It is, it is judgment. But it's not the end of the story. And the emphasis falls again on verses 8 and 9, where the Lord, he says, he, he, I dominates again. How can I give you up? How, how can I hand you over? There's this agony, pain, determination, resolve. You feel his heart. And how many parents have been there where you had to sit back and watch your child make just the worst decisions of their life? And one that, ones that you knew would hurt them and, and in the end cause them to suffer. And it's maddening. And that's the sense we have here as we read Hosea 11. Verse 8, he says, my heart recoils. Oh, that word. It's changed. It's turning over and over within me. And my compassion, he says, I love this. I love this. My compassion grows warm and tender. (laughs) All this rebellion and all this pain stirs up his compassion. Okay, so we're learning so much about God's character through Hosea. We are learning a lot about human nature and our brokenness. But I pray you see something beautiful in God's character here. One moment God's angry, and rightly so. Another moment his heart is broken. I've been there as a parent. 
just really ticked off at my kid. But that doesn't change this, the love I have, the resolve that I have in my heart. He's moved by his compassion and mercy, and he makes it clear he's going to forgive his son. So check it out. All of God's compassion is directed at you this morning. Listen, all of God's compassion is directed at you this morning. All of it. All of God's compassion is directed at you this morning. His love, his compassion. Verse 9. He says, for I am God and not man. Now we need to just pause and rejoice in that. This is a good thing. He is the holy one of all completely holy, perfect in all his, all his ways. He will not fold under pressure or give in to temptation. He is perfect. And here are promises of restoration and acts of compassion all rooted in his character. So we've learned of God's charge. We've learned of God's compassion. And finally, we're looking at God's invitation. Please turn with me to chapter 14, the final chapter in this, this book. And I believe this, ch- this chapter feels a lot like a love song. And here we have in the first three verses, invitation. And then in verses four through eight, this, these, these beautiful promises. Uh, check them out. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity, your sin. And, and take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will, not say, uh, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Hear the promises now. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress from me comes your fruit. Okay, the final word picture that we're given, this vivid picture, is one of a flourishing tree that has taken root and is spreading out in beauty. That's the picture we're given of Israel. Israel failed, though. They failed. Here's the promise found in Hosea. If you'll have eyes to see it, In the New Testament, Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, speaking of out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is the faithful son. Israel failed. Jesus is the faithful son, the faithful Israel of God who obeyed the father completely, completely in every way. Jesus is the faithful son. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is obey completely. And so what we think is, it's important for us to know, his perfect life was lived for us. Yes, he died in our place, 
that was substitutionary as well. He took our place, he took our sin and shame, and he paid the price for our waywardness, our rebellion, our idolatry, our spiritual adultery. So both are true. Jesus, the faithful son, lived a life of perfection for you and I. Jesus, the faithful son, died a death in our place. But also, Hosea paints a clear picture that Jesus is the faithful husband who pursued a wayward people and lifted us out of darkness. Do you see the hope? Do you see the love just spilling off the pages here? Have you strayed from from God? Have you convinced yourself there's no way back? I want to remind you, Gomer's only hope, Hosea's wife, Gomer... Her only hope was in a love she did not deserve. My only hope is in a love I don't deserve. Here's the deal. Your stubborn sin is no match for God's stubborn love. You might feel so far gone, but that's no match for God's far-reaching grace. Oh, he can reach into any, any area. You can't remain neutral to this. All of us have been brought to a crossroads by the book of Hosea. All of us. We're brought to a crossroads. We cannot remain neutral. And then there's this final call to every reader of any age to faithfulness and knowledge, true relationship with God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Pay attention. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. In other words, this is not a message that you and I can just leave in the past. It has relevance for our lives today. It's a message for us today. Church, God wants you to know him. Not just know something about him, but to know him in an experiential way. God wants you to know him, to experience his love and his compassion. And so this invitation has been given. It's been extended. A promise also has been given. It's been extended. So what's your next move? What's your next move? Is Jesus one of many that you're looking to for provision, for guidance, and peace? Are there idols in your life that you need to surrender this morning? Is there a pattern of behavior you need to give up? Have you felt yourself slowly drifting away from God? All right, what's he doing? Where's he putting his finger? I've been praying for you all week. Trust in the Lord by his spirit would bring renewal, revival, conviction, repentance, salvation, that he draws out of and away from the things that are just messing with us and pulling us away from him. And so what I want to remind us all here right now is that all of God's compassion is stirred up towards you right now through Jesus. All of God's compassion is stirred up towards you. All of God's compassion and love. You are not too far gone. You may have been trying to hide, may may be trying to play church. God's getting your attention getting our attention. All of God's compassion is stirred up towards you right now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to 
spend time in prayer together. I'm going to open the front. There'll be individuals who will come forward who have asked to pray. I want to open the front for you. If you feel the conviction of the Lord, you want to get right with him, you want to bring words to him like Hosea tells us to, and say, I admit my guilt. I need help. Well, now's the time. If you are here and you're saying, I want to trust in Jesus, I don't know how to do that, but I want to do it, now's the time. If you know that there's an area of your life that you need to get right and lay down and give up, now's the time. And so I want to invite you to take a step, a bold, courageous, humble step to come forward and pray. This isn't a show, by the way. This is a time of worship, and we're a community, we're a family. And so we're going to spend time in prayer. And if you don't want to come forward, stay where you are and pray. That's fine, too. Let's just take a few minutes. I want to invite those that I've asked to pray to come forward now, and I'll meet you down here as well. Let's go ahead and do that.